Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. What's happening? Everything is everything all right? Are you all right? Is it okay? Is it? Uh, are you, are you underwater? Are you on fire? Is it too windy for you to stand on your porch? What's happening? Where are we at? Is it raining ash yet? I'll tell you, it's been kind of nice out here in uh, Los Angeles the, the last few days. I don't know if I've talked to you. When did I last talk to you? I went to New Mexico. Uh, I don't think I've talked to you since I've been there. I had an okay time. It's weird going home. I looked at some property. I thought maybe maybe I should go home uh, for good or at least spend some time there. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I want to live up in the mountains in northern New Mexico. I don't know if that's me. As my producer, Brendan McDonald, said uh, when I showed him pictures of it, he said, this is for you. You're going to live there. And I'm like, I was well. Maybe I could spend uh, you know, every few weeks or every you know month or so. I could go out there for a few days. He said, "You, the guy who, during quarantine for ten days, was texting me like he was the Omega Man." All right, I get it. That doesn't mean I can't change, right? Look, I have Mira Sorvino on the show today, and I, I just want to mention, obviously, I mean, many of you know her. She's an Academy Award winner for her performance in Mighty Aphrodite. She was in Guillermo del Toro's Mimic, Spike Lee's Summer of Sam. She was recently in Ryan Murphy's Netflix series, Hollywood. And she's in the new star series, Shining Veil, with Courtney Cox and Greg Kinnear. But it's, it's heavy, man. You know, she had a big chunk of her career taken from her by Harvey Weinstein. Directors like Peter Jackson have admitted they were told by Weinstein not to cast her in projects years after she had endured sexual harassment by the pig and rejected his advances, Weinstein. It's heavy, man. This took a big toll on her, and she's a great actress. But I'm here to tell you it's all still very raw and difficult for Mira. And we talk about it. We talk about all of it. And I just want to make sure that you know what's coming ahead of time here. It's emotional stuff. On a lighter note, I I had a couple of nice things happen this week. Well, let me tell you about New Mexico. I saw my dad. He's holding steady uh, at uh, not a lot of change. It's good to see him. I'm glad to be there for him. I'm I'm happy to be part of this process um, as he sort of... uh, 
He's now all of a sudden listening to my podcast. So I, <laughs> he used to be on it without knowing it, but now he's sort of, I think, uh, his wife, Rosie, has got him uh, finally figured out uh, how to, uh, to hear me. But, uh, but I'm glad I'm going out there and showing up and taking him out for lunch and sitting around watching him fall asleep on the couch while we watch a movie. That kind of stuff. You know, regular dad-son stuff. You all right, Dad? You all right? Just want to say that uh, if he's listening, I love you. It was good to see you. And um, I'll be back soon. I'm going to keep coming until you forget who I am. Then you're on your own. Is that a deal? Can we make that deal? I'll be at Largo tonight, 8.30 p.m. here in Los Angeles. On Saturday, I'll be in San Luis Obispo, California at the Fremont. That's March 5th at 7 o'clock p.m. A few tickets left. I'll be in Santa Barbara, California on Sunday, March 6th at 7.30 p.m. at the Lobero. And then next week, a lot of stuff uh, in the East Coast. New Haven, Connecticut, March 9th at College Street. Music Hall in Troy, New York on March 10th. The Colonial Theater in Laconia, New Hampshire on March 11th. And Flynn Center in Burlington, Vermont on March 12th. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all that uh, info and ticket links. Also, I just want to make sure people know that uh, I've got the Moon Tower Festival, Paramount Theater, April 22nd, Austin, Texas. Again, WTFPod.com slash tour for all of those dates. There's a lot of dates, a lot of different places. Okay? All right. Okay, enough of that. I have to mark and acknowledge and be grateful for the life I'm living in the face of fascism, hatred, environmental disaster, <laughs> the slow crumbling of the social fabric. <laughs> I have to take a minute to sort of enjoy my real life. And I'll, I'll tell you, you'll hear it eventually. But I, I did another interview with Keith Richards yesterday on Zoom. He's got a, a reissue of uh, Main Offenders coming up. But we took the opportunity. They, they were like, do you want to talk to Keith again? Mike, of course. And I pressed him. I pressed him on where he gets his beanies. So look forward to me having that answer and also to that coming. But it was just a thrill because no, I, could, I talked to him a long time ago and I just completely lost my mind. And I thought maybe I've got it together, but I don't. Completely lost my mind again. But I got him all excited. It's fun to get him going. And also another hero, Keith Richards, since I was like 14, 15. What am I going to, how am I going to keep my shit together, even if I'm on Zoom? But not unlike Keith Richards, you know, David Letterman was... The, you know, that was the bar, man. That was it for talk shows and for being on a talk show. I spent most of my life as a comic wanting to get on Letterman and eventually getting on. And, and then I eventually had the opportunity to talk to him here at the house and it was great. But I was uh, on the, at the comedy store the other night at, in the main room. And it was one of those sets where it was a produced show. It wasn't a regular show. It was a, a, a comic produced show. I was filling in for Jeff Ross even. And I don't know, I, I, you know, the audience is okay, but it's always weird with the produced shows because I don't know where they come from. They're not an organic audience. They're all reached through the same avenue. And I, I, I don't know. They were fine. They were good, but it was just different. And I was kind of snotty at first. I was kind of like fighting it. But then I ended up pushing through and doing the shit I'm doing right now. I'm doing the shit. I'm doing the stand-up comedy work. I'm doing the real work. I love doing club work. Uh... 
especially that club. But anyway, so I get off stage. Security guy from the club comes back and he's, I, he says, uh, David Letterman wants to talk to you. And I'm like, what? David Letterman wants to talk to you. I'm like, what are you talking about? Is he here? Yeah, he's here. And my, <laughs> then I said, uh, wait, what? Am I in trouble? Am I? <laughs> It was half joking, but I'm like, did I do something wrong? Am I in trouble? Why is, why is he doing here? And I went out and on the back patio, David Letterman was there with a couple of people and he was just there and he, he just wanted to say hi and tell me that he thought that the stuff I was doing right now was important and somebody's got to be saying it and nobody's really saying it. And he was happy I was saying it. And then we kind of had a few laughs and chatted a bit. He told me about a little bit about his time there and having a few memories of the place, but this guy was, you know, my hero. So I talked to two heroes of mine in, in the last week. One surprise, I was surprised. It was a surprise visit. The other one, you know, was planned. I'll tell you what's great. And I had this moment with Eddie Murphy too, right at the beginning. It's great to make Keith Richards laugh. And it's great to make Letterman laugh. I mean, you know, we are all familiar with Letterman's laugh. Because, you know, I've been listening to it for half my life. But just to be right there with it, see it happening in real time, what a fucking treat. What a fucking treat. What a life I'm living. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so Mira Sorvino uh, is in this uh, new star series called uh, Shining Veil. It premieres uh, this Sunday, March 6th. And again, listen to me. This is a content warning that our conversation deals very frankly with sexual harassment, abuse, misogyny, and the general mistreatment of human beings. So I'm, I want you to know that ahead of time. This is what we're doing. We also have some nice things. There's nice things. There's fun things. There's some great experiences spoken about, but we're okay. We're people here. This is me talking to uh, Mira Sorvino. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. You know. I watched a bit of the new show, and it's a fun show. It seems like a fun show. Mm-hmm. Are you it's happy? Very fun. Yeah. yeah? Shiningville. Yeah. I, you, I love it. You do? Yeah. I mean, you have to. I mean, in terms of, like, my character, you have to stick with it for a few episodes to really meet her because she's sort of haunting the edges in the beginning and you don't really see her much. The slow unfolding yeah. of the ghost presence who takes over the writing process? Is that, <laughs> is that how it works? 
Uh, kind of, yeah. Not just the writing, but yeah, she kind of takes over. <laughs> yeah. And is it fun working with... Uh, Courtney oh Cox. Yes. It's amazing. She's just a doll and so talented and so humble and fun and beautiful and just uh, the perfect straight man. Like, she's so good at playing reality but making it funny. Mm. You know, she doesn't yeah. do, like, a big character or anything. I'm more like, I create, like, the big weird characters to be funny. She's just funny as the normal person. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I guess that's what she's been doing forever. She's like, but, it's, it, but that's that's what makes a person a star. You know, yeah, you know like, the, for sure. like the old movies, like you wanted to see that person again and again. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Kinnear too, right? Oh, you he's were, hilarious. He's a good guy. You know, how, how long have you lived out here? When did you, you were in New York, weren't you? I was in New York full time until 2001. Then I bought my place out here and then yeah. I was bi-coastal until 2014 and then we had to choose a coast because the kids were in school we have four kids four and so once you're really in a school year like you can't maintain two properties on two coasts like why because yeah. you're gonna be there for three weeks a year like it doesn't make sense yeah and like that's but that's crazy at the how do you how how old's your oldest one 17 so the pandemic must have been a nightmare I mean <laughs> Well, did, you get, did you get tight? Did you get closer? Well, we were always close. I right. mean, I think uh, it was very hard on them. I mean, but we had each other. You know, yeah, we had yeah. like, I mean, some people who had no one during the pandemic, I think, fared far worse. Right. I think actually having a big family made it more bearable, even if everybody was getting cabin fever. But yeah. really, didn't, no one went totally crazy. <laughs> it's a question of degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, like, when you were growing up, were you around actors all the time? Um, actors would be friends with my parents. And, you know, my mother was also an actress. And then she gave it up to be a full-time mom, something which I never understood as a kid. But now I understand. If I had the luxury, I could totally see it But you happening. never gave it up. No, well, I, my, I never gave it up. No, I couldn't. Yeah. Because economically, I couldn't. Right. Um, but, God, must uh, be a lot. But, you know, there's... Uh, but we did have a lot of... We did have a lot of actors that my father worked with that in would New come York. to the house or, you know, opera singers or, opera singers. you know, politicians. And like, you know, there was all kinds of culture coming in and out of our dining room. Uh -huh. You know, we, my parents would throw dinner parties. Like, oh, wow. So yeah, they were very good at entertaining. Like the, I, I don't have that skill. Um, no? No. I used to, when I was like young and single, I used to throw these apartment parties in New York and yeah. just fit like a hundred people into an, you know. 400 yeah. square foot like right. walk up you right. know i yeah, don't know yeah. how yeah but um i don't know i just i think with all the kids and obviously with the past two years there's just been no entertaining but of course hopefully we'll open it up again and but, people will go back to normal to some extent i mean yeah yeah i don't know that <laughs> i think we can take the masks off as of today inside wow so everyone can finally get it yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I just had it, so I'm. I I'm did too. Kind of glad in a way because you spend two years afraid it's going to kill you. Yeah. And then you have it. It's not great, but I didn't die, so I'm very happy about that. It's weird coming on. It doesn't feel like anything else, does it? It, it like people were saying it's like a cold. It didn't feel like a no, cold. No, it didn't to feel me. like a cold. No. Wait, I, I well, I'm to, I'm all vaxxed up, but it felt weird. Like I felt weird. What? How was your symptoms? Bad. Well, the first I, I don't yeah. know the first. The first few days, I yeah. had this extreme lower back pain that I thought was my kidneys failing. Wow. But it Would there might be any also, reason for that? 
It might also have been because I had just broken my arm. Mm. And so I, I was taking painkillers for my arm because it was like really extreme. And yeah. I think it was too much for my body to process. And I think my kidneys were just complaining. Yeah. As soon as I stopped taking them, it went away. Right. Now, it could have just been a weird early COVID symptom. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. But I was I, I had like blood work done and I had like a thing, a scan for kidney sc- stones and nothing, yeah. nothing came up. No. There was nothing. So. so it was just, uh, you don't know. I don't know. But that maybe was COVID. But what were the general symptoms? I just felt kind of congested, tired, ch- tightness in my chest a little. I had like fever the you whole did? time, oh. but low. Yeah. Like never went over 100, but right. my usual temperature is like 97 point something. So like for me, a 99.8 is a fever. Right. Or somebody else that'd be like, oh, you barely have a, you know. Right. But, sure. But that lasted for like 11 days. Yeah. And, and I f- felt that kind of, uh, that the, like no one understands in my family when I describe it, but I get these little shocks in my joints, like a little. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Like these little electrical Huh. Like jolts yeah. uh, when I'm sick, and that was happening a lot. And I was sort of sweating, and and I had the I had a cough you that did. never it never went into anything like you know pneumonia or anything. But I still have this residual cough that you know it's like <laughs> you do. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but it's I, I mean I'm COVID free. I've been tested several times. I know. I yeah. It took me like 12 days. It was like 12 days, and it was driving me nuts. Yeah, because you start comparing yourself to other people. Yeah, like, how like, did how come that person only had a three days? Yeah. We go and just like you start to feel even. Like, there was that weird feeling of like I I failed, I lost, <laughs> I was winning for two years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I I started to think that I was naturally immune. Like I was like oh, everyone yeah. around getting me's cocky, had it. I'm not right? getting it. Like I was on <laughs> sets where like eight out of the ten of us would get it. I right. wouldn't get it. Like it's yeah. just like how did how do I not have it? Well, I must maybe. be amazing. So all right, so you grow up in this like uh, salon of talent. And excitement. How many how many kids in your family? Um, I was the oldest of three. I have a brother and a sister, Michael Sorvino and Amanda Sorvino. He's an actor too. Michael's an actor, yeah. And now, like, were you inspired to be in show business? Yes, I mean, although I came to it through doing like my own plays in school. Like that's how I fell in love with it. By writing plays? No, I actually wrote plays when I was really little. Actually, when I was like six, I did a play. Actually, with the actress Hope Davis, who lived across the street from Hope me. Hope Davis. Are you guys still friends? <laughs> uh, we haven't seen each other in a long time. I and mean, we're friendly when we see each other. But, I mean, we moved away from that street when I was like 10. So. Where was that? In, in New York? In Tenafly, New Jersey. I like New Jersey. It's beautiful. You, you appreciate it once you've left it. Yeah. At the time, I was like, oh, I can't wait to move to the city. Or, you know, I can't sure. imagine living here as an adult. And now I'm like, oh, it was so nice. And it would be wonderful for the kids. Right <laughs> now. Yeah, everything changes. Yeah. So what was the amazing play that you starring you and Hope Davis at It was age called six? The Dutch Doll. Oh, ah, The Dutch I was doll. a girl and I had a doll. She was the doll. Yeah. And the doll was sick and it had to go to the doll doctor. Oh, And I was exciting. very worried about it. Yes. And we performed it for the whole neighborhood <laughs> in our backyard. Did the doll live? The doll lived, yes. Oh, happy, happy ending. ending. Yeah. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So, but did you... Were you doing a lot of acting in high school and stuff? Yeah, I was. I mean, not professionally. I I just acted in all the plays at school. And then at 16 and a half, a talent scout came to my high school looking for girls who could horseback ride and act. Hmm. And I happened to have a horse and compete in like hunter jumper shows. Oh, you did? And I was in all the plays. And so my school recommended me and like six other girls. Apparently there were a lot of us. Um, And it was... It was basically like a reboot of National Velvet called Sylvester, Mm. and they were doing this nationwide, like, search. Ultimately, I had, like, three callbacks and a screen test, but then they gave it to Melissa Gilbert. Um, But Uh. that started my career because 
we had a friend of the family who was a child manager Mm. and she heard about me because of having clients I guess in the mix and she said you know uh, it's really encouraging that Mira got that far if you want I could represent her yeah and so she ended up being my manager for like a decade um, really yeah it's so weird with acting because like you know it's you get into it by being rejected <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's the it's the fucking worst i mean i can't like i could like i've always done comedy and i've and i've acted now a bit but just what actors go through to the rejection is insane yeah yeah you get rich well it's sort of like baseball though it's sort of like you know how your batting average even if you're an amazing hitter yeah. you're gonna strike out like 70 percent right. of the time you know yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. so it just so you were able to contextualize that like to compartmentalize that much just as a young person like that like it's not really on you that they don't want you i think well my father used to say he did not want us to be actors because it was so personal and because compared to another job where when they reject you, it's like your resume isn't strong enough or they want somebody with a skill of that or whatever. Sure. But when you're an actor, they're rejecting you. They right. don't want you. Right. And so he w- he just really wanted us to become anything but actors. Um, but then when I was 23 and I was out of college and I was taking this course at the International Center for Photography in New York and we had to do like, we had to shoot a roll of film every day and write in a journal and try and like sort of keep our creative muse awakened. And as I would journal, I realized, oh, my art form right now to say whatever it is I have inside me is acting. Uh-huh. Like, I really need to be an actor. You just felt that? Yeah. It, it was very, it was the, the, this calling that came to me while I was in this. I mean, I had always been acting. I never stopped. But I was doing a lot of other things, too. I was, uh, I was interning at Tribeca Productions, and then I got hired by them as a reader, and I thought maybe I wanted to be a director, and I thought maybe I wanted to be a photographer. And what did you study in school, though? East Asian languages and civilizations. What but, was that about? Uh, it was Chinese studies, basically. But uh, Tiananmen Square happened during my senior year, so it. Were you ha- there? No, I had just come back from China after having lived there for eight months. Well, and what was the compulsion, though? Like, you know, what what made you study that? What was the fascination originally? Ah, uh, I, I think freshman year I took this incredible course by Casey Zhang, this um, famous archaeologist yeah. on politics, art, and mythology in Bronze Age China, and I loved it so much. Wow. And they were like, you know, there's this concentration. You can study anything you want as long as it pertains to East Asia. Like you could study the politics of the Vietnam War, Japanese, like Shinto architecture, you know, Tong poetry, anything you wanted as long as it pertained to East Asia. And so I ended up writing my thesis about racial conflict, but within a Chinese context. And it was basically like a sociology anthro kind of thesis even though i'd been like humanities like literature history the whole time harvard harvard yeah so it was like this multidisciplinary concentration at a time that there weren't many other concentrations where you could study more than one or two things like you could do history and lit which would allow you to do history and lit of your countries that you spoke the language of yeah but you couldn't take like art from the same period and have it count whereas anything went under this ealc canopy right and i i kind of felt like i'd been chinese in another life like i was very good friends and still am yeah with a woman named angela wong who's now a doctor and uh, we're still really close yeah and she used to take me with her family to chinatown when i was a kid and yeah peking opera and playing mahjong with her grandma and for some reason i really connected with the traditional culture yeah and when it, it was funny because i went went to china and was living there and studying there i was like Where's the traditional culture? Like communism had right. kind of changed it so much. Right. But then like when you really got into people's homes, 
that same element was still there and they were actually very much like Italians. It was kind of funny, but like Chinese people are super warm and family oriented and touchy feely and food is love and, you know, great boisterous belly laughs. And I felt very, very much at home once I became close friends with Chinese people over there. Um, I think it's a language barrier that makes us unaware of their emotional nature. You, You know what I mean? I think that for a lot of regular white people, that there's like, it's just this, it's hard for some reason for us to understand. Well, I think also there might be a conflation between like Japanese culture and Chinese culture mm. because the Japanese have much more ceremony and like hierarchy in uh-huh. their, uh-huh. you know, language even. Yeah. You know, there's grammar of like, you're inferior, you're superior, this and that. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, whereas Chinese is, uh, I mean, there's definitely, you know, saving face and being polite and everything, but. But there's a ton of warmth in it. It's very warm. Very, huh. very warm people. And you spoke it? Yeah. Yeah. By the time I, I left there, I was pretty fluent. I was like dreaming in it. And I had rented a room from a Chinese woman for my second half of the time I stayed there. And um, I wrote, like I edited Chinese language magazines and I sang jazz with Chinese European bands. I had like fake books. So everybody wanted to be, like have me in their band so they could get my music. Wow. <laughs> my dad would send me like fake books of all like the jazz standards and then I was singing like Satin Doll and one for my baby and one for the road. In Chinese? It, no, I was singing, I, I sang like Autumn Leaves in French and yeah. the rest of it I sang in English. But the funny thing is actually in Shining Vale, they let me sing one for my baby and one for the road in the show. And that was like my big hit song in China. So. <laughs> in French, down the show? Yeah, not in French. No, no. Oh. Autumn Leaves was in French, but one for my baby, one for the road, like the Frank yeah, Sinatra, yeah. Ella oh, Fitzgerald okay, kind okay. of stuff. Do you love to sing? I do. I do. I, I mean, I don't have a big voice, yeah. but I do love to sing. And um, Do you ever think of doing a, like a cabaret act? Uh, I, You know, I was in a, a, a show at Don't Tell Mamas when I was in New York, and um, I, I always plan to like do singer songwriter stuff and I've written a couple of songs and then just life gets in the way and I don't do it and like you know like I have a guitar and then the guitar cracked or then I broke my arm or you know like but I always have these ideas yeah and it's something that when I have a little bit more time but in the context of this you know I happened to tell Jeff Astroff you know you know I sing a little and you know there's this song and he was like okay well why don't you record it yeah I was like what so then I got to record it and then um then I told him that I danced and then he created this incredible opening for, I think it's episode eight or nine. In Shining Vale. In Shining Vale, yeah. where I get to do an homage to like, it's it's short, but to yeah. like, um, you know, Fred Astaire dancing with the coat rack or yeah. Gene Kelly with the mop. Like I do this whole sort of little 50s style balletic dance around the house with various household implements like a mop and uh-huh. a feather duster. And it was uh, the time of my life. Like, I was so happy. I can't even tell you how happy I was. It was like I had stepped into an old movie. Like, I was so happy. Really? D- yeah. They bring a choreographer in? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. exciting. Right? Yeah. And I had taken like eight years of ballet as a kid, you know, so I had some it's technique. still in there? Yeah. Yeah, it's still in it there. doesn't go away. No. No, especially. And I, as an adult, like, sometimes I study with um, Romy Rappaport. Um, who's just an amazing teacher. She used to be part of the New York City Ballet. Uh-huh. And her sister, Zipporah, also sometimes used to teach me. So I, I kept up the ballet a little bit as an adult. But oh, really? So much fun. Yeah. That's nice to have that. I, I, and you play guitar too? Yeah, but not well. Like, I, I play, uh, it's a, like it's a hobby, you know? It's a great thing to have one of those. Yeah. A, like an outlet. Yes. That you're happy about. So how about the Mandarin? Did that stick? Uh, I, you know, 
if you drop me in the middle of China within a week, I'd probably <laughs> you could be get speaking. Out. I'd probably be speaking fluently again. But right yeah. now, like I'll be speaking a, a sentence, and then in the middle, I'll forget how to say like magazine, or I'll right, forget right. you know how to like sure. like. But I can kind of BS my way along for a little while. But like my reading and writing has gone to absolute hell. Like I. You know, because it's all memorization. Yeah. And it requires maintenance. You know, so the characters I've really lost. Oh. Um, but it well, was a it was a while ago. I mean, like I graduated in you know eighty nine ninety. Like sure. I was class of eighty nine, but I took a semester off to stay in China longer. So um, how long were you there total? Eight months. Oh wow. Yeah, I'm and it was an amazing out. experience. What were you saying about Tiananmen? Um, so that happened right after I left. And yeah. once that happened, it really changed everything for those of us who had been working in the China field because we couldn't really go back oh, um, because we would endanger our Chinese friends by associating with them. Once really? that happened, yeah. And therefore, we'd just be going over and being like expats together with expats in China. Like, why? Why? Yeah. Like, the whole point, if you're going to be in China is to be with Chinese people and live the you know within the culture yeah and that became very dangerous for Chinese people to have foreign friends at that point so it was like well also I think all of us wanted to kind of just show our disapproval of what had happened and not be like oh it's business as usual so if that hadn't happened I might not be an actor today I mean maybe I would but it, it like pointed me back into the world of like entertainment and going back to New York and creativity in that way yeah whereas I was kind of more on this academic track and I was maybe going to go teach English again in China when I graduated maybe in a different province and learn uh -huh. a different dialect and although while I was in China I did sing and then I became friends with one of Bertolucci's like assistant directors on The Last Emperor and and she had like a Chinese reverse Beatles story where was that shooting there when you were there wasn't shooting there when you were there was it I think it it had just yeah. shot there. I okay. Think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and so she wanted me to play a sort of American, like adjunct, like a sort of parallel to like Yoko Ono, even though Yoko Ono is Japanese, um, with the Chinese Beatles. Yeah. Like, and I'd be the American girlfriend. Um, so strangely, like acting was still kind of finding me, but yeah. I wasn't looking for it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But. If I had, you know, because my parents got divorced while I was in China, and that's one of the reasons I stayed an extra semester, because I wasn't ready to go back to school, because it was too hard for me to be in classes with, like, I was very depressed. Yeah. So I just took time off and lived and worked in China for that second semester. Yeah. And and I had, you know, I, I kind of righted myself on the other side of the world, like I made myself functional and happy again. You processed the... Yeah, the grief and without the Without loss. having to deal with the drama, I guess, huh? Well, I mean, other like, I mean, you weren't in it, right? I wasn't in it. That's sure. good. Yeah, but the, you know, it it had its costs. Like they packed, they sold the house and packed up my room without oh. me ever seeing it again. You know what I mean? Like just everything was gone. The whole uh, your whole life room. Yeah. Well, no. From I guess from when we moved from the the place where we lived near yeah. Hope Davis to like. Because I think I was, we left, no, maybe we moved when I was eight, actually. Oh, yeah, so eight to 17 oh, was in that man. house. And then, no, that's But, terrible. you know, it's, it's, it was this in, is divorce, you know. Did you get the boxes? Did you get the stuff? Some of them. Some of them never, no. Oh, I, so there I, was I, loss. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Someone decided it was garbage. <laughs> right, like, you know, like scrapbooks or yeah. you know, things like that. Just I'm sorry. There. It's okay. It's yeah. just, you know. Life. Yeah, everybody um, has one. So. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's not easy. <laughs> Life is not easy. It's much harder than I thought, actually. <laughs> it is, right? Yeah. It's such a, like, you know, as you get older, too, like I'm 58, it's just sort of like, is this the big payoff? I mean, what, 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 
what, what, because like when you finally get a handle on shit, it's you're almost done. It seems <laughs> right. Maybe that's the point. You know, it's yeah, like a it's a lesson point. that it takes this long time to learn. And then it's sort of like nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Enjoy your wisdom. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So when you have the epiphany at the uh, the at the photography school in the program, so then I went to my dad and was like, "Dad, I I know I need to be an actress. Like it's very clear to me, it's the only thing I want to do." And then he said, "Well, then I give you my blessing." Oh. And that's when I started. <laughs> and then I kind of turned around from. So he always talks like the mob boss in Goodfellas. Like a more cultured version. <laughs> okay. Like a more Shakespearean version. Okay. Um, there's nothing about him that's thuggish, but um, he is imposing. What was that movie that he did when he played the heroin addicted lounge singer? Oh, that was good. The Cooler. Right? Yeah, The Cooler. With Alec Baldwin. It was amazing. Yeah. It was rough. That's a sad. It's hard to watch. Sad. Yeah. I was Seeing him like a child, day. like banging the table, needing his fix. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my dad. Wow. Yeah. Had you never seen him like that? No. no. Oh, but he got there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. No, he can do anything. Yeah. So what, um, so you tell him, gives you the blessing. And then I just started really focusing because I had been, I'd been in acting class and yeah. I'd been auditioning for things, but yeah. I was also doing a little modeling, a little waitressing, you know, like all kinds of stuff. And as soon as I was like, no, this is the only thing I want to do. Mm. And I kind of took this chance and dropped everything else and just started really focusing on my classes and my auditions. I started booking things within like a month. What classes? Um, Wynn Handman. Oh, was, yeah. Yeah, he was my teacher. I, I went to Bill Esper during the summer while I was in college. Um, but his is a two-year course. And honestly, my dad had already taught me most of what he was going to teach me because my dad was a graduate of Bill and Meisner. So, the um, original Meisner Yeah, bunch. Sandy Meisner. Yeah. yeah. He was. Oh, he got so a scholarship he, to that school. So your dad would actually like lay stuff on you, like you know, like this is oh, the deal. Oh, he would teach me like any time I had a role to prepare for in high school, he would work with me for hours. Really, and, and then he would come to me after a performance and give me like two hours of notes. And yes, would I appreciate it to be like the other parents would be like, honey, that was wonderful. <laughs> he would say, honey, that was terrific. I just have two notes. And they'd sit you down and then you'd get a two hour lecture about what you hadn't done right. Mm. But it was from those sessions that I learned. You know, he would be like, every time you go like, and then say your line, you're letting out your first instinct. You're mm. falsifying whatever you're going to do. Oh you're killing God. your first instinct. Wow. Never take, never exhale before speaking. Just speak the line. Just let it come out. Wow. Stick with the other fellow. You'll never be wrong. You might be boring, but you'll never be untruthful. Um, you know, like everything, you know, there was all, always these notes that would really were the fundamentals of, of acting. And But when I was eight, he taught me how to emotionally prepare because I had to cry. And he had me sit in the middle of the stairway and think of something very sad until there was tears streaming down my face and then come down and play the scene. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So I had this, I, I, I don't know that I could teach my kids the same way he did because I don't know if I'd have the emotional fortitude to, to, to them let them it. upset themselves at that young of an age because for him, it's the art form and it is the art form. But I think it changed me. I think it made me burn these neural pathways to sadness that I would not have had had I not been an actress. Like, I am such a sad person sometimes, and it's because I need to access it all the time for my work. Like, all of my characters cry for some reason. Whatever I get cast in, <laughs> they always cry, even if it's a big, fat comedy like Romeo and Michelle. She cries like four or five times in the show. And uh, Maybe they know you're good at it. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it's sort of... I don't know. I think I have this weird, sweet spot between 
like zany and vulnerable mm. for the comedy stuff yeah. and the vulnerable side there's always a crying scene and so so I had to get to the point and, and my father also always used to say the day I use the tears is the day I walk out of the business and so it was anathema the idea that I would ever Fake ever it. use glycerin tears or camphor to make yourself tear up because a lot of actors do that sure you know they'll like well, right you, you before they go it, and they'll blow it in their eyes their eyes will kind of glass up and then right in the middle of the scene the tear will roll down perfectly down their street I cannot do that. I'll have to kill myself. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's been planted in you. Yes. Yeah. So I just have to sit there and destroy myself emotionally and bring myself to the worst day of my life. And then I'm sobbing and I have to do it for hours and hours and take after take. And that's that's the legacy of Paul Servino's eight-year-old <laughs> daughter learning to cry in the middle of the stairs. Um, now, so that, But that's interesting, though, that you think that you actually carve some... Some sad paths. Oh, absolutely. Because of your ability to access it. And then yes. when you're not accessing it, you still got the thing. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I think I already am sort of like an empath or like somebody who feels things a little deeper than your average Joe. But but it definitely made those sensitivities heightened. It's, a, it's like I, I have some of those tendencies where, you know, people can just... Like, it, well, I'm, I'm projecting now, but like the empath thing or the sensitivity, it's hard to maintain boundaries. And people are, you know, take it, you know, they definitely see you as an emotional mark sometimes, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I think that sometimes I would hide it. Yeah, but I well, would always we, feel can it. We? I don't know. Can we hide it? I don't know. I don't like, because I'm doing stand up up there lately with the world the way it is, and like, I'll stop in the middle of my act and go like, these jokes are starting to make me cry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> things get heavy, you know? Yeah, things are heavy now. And it's funny because, you know, I've been watching all the Academy mm-hmm. films because, you know, I have to vote. And Good for you for being so diligent. They're so damned. Well, it was great that I had that to do during COVID. Yeah. Because I basically couldn't get out of my bed. So I was just like, all right, I'm oh, going to watch some documentaries now. Oh, like, yeah, I, yeah. Like, you know, like, do it just, all. Yeah, do it all. Watch the foreign films, yeah. everything. And But I was really struck by how negative most of the films were. I was yeah. so surprised about the tone, the darkness of so much of the most fetid stuff out there. Because... But I think it's it it's appropriate for what it's we've a been reflection. living through. Sure, you know, it's just the mindset. What struck that, you though? Like, what do you mean? Well, like, I just like I was like, wow, these films are so negative without a spot of negative light. or dark. Negative and dark. Hmm. Like, did you watch Drive My Car? Yes, and I actually really liked Drive My Car. Right? I, uh, yeah. I it, it took you know it took some getting into because the pace is slow. But, but that's like dark. But it's like it's no. It's but human. that's not as dark. Yeah, that's not what I mean. That right. one's not negative. It's that one grief. has a life affirmingness at yeah. the end, or a sort of a a sort of this is what life is, and we yes. have to make peace with it. Right. And like doing the checkoff, you know, and oh and, my god, and with the with the the sign language, yeah, and oh yeah, and then we will rest, and we you know we will look back on how we suffered, and yeah, like yeah. that's like our fate. Like we all want what we can't have. We want to change the reality, yeah. and we can't. Yeah. Like we just can't undo what is real yes and it's so heartbreaking though like life that's why life is so hard because you know i think we're spoon-fed with these happy ending you know if there's a will there's a way you can dream it you can do it and then certain things cannot change no matter what and certain things befall you which are out of the sky that are so hard that you never could have imagined them in a million years and there's nothing you can do about them you are you are disempowered you don't have agency sometimes 
And that goes against our culture, which always tells us that we can do something about everything. But there's not always something you can do about loss, death, you know, betrayal, like the oh, yeah. change. You can't. Yeah. Power structures. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the world turning on its head and yeah. people going crazy and becoming racist again. And or maybe they always were. We just didn't know it. But, yeah. You know. There's like something happened on stage last night where I just like uh, because I was like I just said there's nothing there's nothing we can do. <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's okay, it's folks. So, just it's so okay much. to cry. It's so right, <laughs> and then we can cry. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> cry or like, cry or hug or something. Yeah, but yeah. Just uh, yeah. A, so this has been like a weird life lesson past few years, and I'm yeah, just yeah. Like, wow, I just didn't see it coming. I I feel like we're about to drift into sadness. Okay, you and I. all right. Yeah, we're 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 we're, <laughs> we're egging each other on. I know. I know. We're just right. waiting for each other to cry. Uh, but you can do it on purpose, apparently. And <laughs> yeah. Mine, I can't control that well. <laughs> so when, so it looked like when I was looking at some of the movies that you did early on, you were part of that like New York crew of of actors and stuff and people in that time. I was definitely in New York and making Imperioli all the and yes, those yes, guys. And what's yes. that guy? Winnick is that that guy's Gary name? Gary Winnick. He Gary directed Winnick. Sweet Nothing. Yeah, um, he's dead. I know. Brain cancer. But he like he had a little didn't he then wasn't there a casting operation running out of his office as well? I mean, I remember being at his office for some reason. Maybe Gary, I'm thinking of somewhere. He may else. have I mean, I think he was the son of somebody who had a lot of money. Oh, okay. And there may have been a family element to that. When you yeah. when you started working there, it seemed like a pretty vital like your generation, anyways. I'm putting you in that. Did you yeah. feel that? Oh yeah. No, and, and I was working over at Tribeca Productions yeah. with Jane Rosenthal and De Niro, like reading scripts and you know, that with was you, a, so you saw Robert around a lot? Uh-huh, yeah. And and my dad obviously yeah. was friends with him. You know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He's so a good he, guy, right? Yeah, and he gave me one of my first jobs in, in the business. Oh, yeah? Very, you know, as a reader. Like, right. At first I interned, and, and then I got hired, so that was awesome. Very hard job to read scripts. You have to... And make notes. Read them, and then you've got to boil down their plot to like, th- like three quarters of a page, yeah. and then you have to have a paragraph of like suggest... Yeah consider or decline and me being a non-decisive person who doesn't like to destroy people's futures i was always like well it's like a b plus script that could be an a minus if they just did this and that and if they just developed this or the, yeah. the characters yeah. voices were a little different and they were like mira yeah. <laughs> you know one day because uh, i had I had suggested one script and said yeah. consider on two others out of like a whole season of scripts that I was reading. Yeah. And Jane Rosenthal called me into her office and she was like, Mira, yeah. in order for you to say consider, yeah. this script needs to be worth ten- millions of dollars and two years of my time. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> got it. Got it. Did not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I always felt bad for the writers. Like I just wanted to give them their sure. shot. Was you know? not the job for you. <laughs> no. <laughs> anything where I have to choose anything is not my job. Like I can't choose between anything. My kids are always trying to make me choose my favorite of something and I can never choose. It's Even my daughter, when she sends me pictures yeah. f- to post on her Instagram, choose your favorites. I don't know. They're all cute, Matea. Uh, you know, yeah. mom. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah. I, well, that's weird. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I experienced some of that too. It's frustrating. Yeah, I wish I were more decisive. <laughs> I mean, Must be so nice to be decisive. I, I find that in a pinch, like I'm up, if I'm up against the wall, I can make a pretty confident decision. If there's a panic, I can do it. So what I try to do is get myself into as much panic as possible. <laughs> Just live on the edge all the time. <laughs> exactly, because then everything feels urgent enough to decide immediately. <laughs> so when, like, as as it evolves, though. Well, obviously, the big break is the Woody Allen movie, right? Yes, although the first big yeah. break was, I mean, maybe Whit Stillman's Barcelona. Oh, that's a great movie. 
That guy's interesting guy. He is, yeah. I mean, I don't know what happened to him. He's or, still working. He yeah. just takes long periods of time between projects. Yeah. Because there was a couple of those movies that he did. Yeah. Disco. But yeah, there was a tone to those movies that were very yes, specific. Very specific. He, it was It was a Wood Stillman movie. Yes, Wood um, Stillman, yeah. And so I got cast in that, and then I got cast by Robert Redford in Quiz Show, and that was a huge deal for me as a young actor. So how was know. it working with those directors? I mean, like, you, you know, you did those... Like amongst friends, okay, so that that was a like an indie movie, but then you're in the big time. So like working with uh, with Stillman, like what what? Because he's like a real tonal guy. How'd that work? Well, I'm a lot freer than he is, yeah. And so I think we, you know, at the time perhaps like, but it heads a little bit about my more slightly improvisational style and his saying, um, "You missed a comma." Right, but, right, right. But ultimately, I think he was very happy with what I did. Yeah. Um, and. We have a lot of mutual respect and fondness for each other, um, you know. So I, I would work with him again. I think it would be very interesting to to do it now. His world now, yeah. Is he st- like the guy I was thinking of? Is Christopher? What's how do you say his last Chris name? Chris Eigenman. Eigenman, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. He's yeah. an intense guy. He is, and with that biting humor, yeah, very biting. Here. And then there's Taylor Nichols, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that was a super experience getting to live in Barcelona and play a Catalan girl, and it was yes. super fascinating. So and I went from that, and then I. Got the Woody Allen movie, but the quiz show. How was the, how was working with Redford? Oh, amazing, but terrifying because like he used to do like twenty takes per angle, and wow. I was coming from indie world where we were working with short ends in yeah. like the last bits of cans of film while we were still using right, film. right. And you never had time for more than five takes ever. And so when we were getting up on take 18, 19, 20, I yeah. was like, oh, I'm screwing up. Oh, they're going to recast. I can see the casting director over there. They're looking at me. They're going to call the other girl and say, we made a mistake. Can you be here tomorrow? Like, that's how I felt. Yeah. And then um, I came home from work and I was so despondent. And my dad's after like, Quisha? what's wrong? Well, like after the first day. Yeah. And I was like, oh, dad, I think they're going to fire me. Like it, they did so many takes and I felt like he was not getting what he wanted and yeah. and I just felt like and he said well look you go in there and you take your best swing mm-hmm. at it and just say blanket yeah just say the f word it yeah um you know what's the worst that could happen yeah you could get fired yeah. everybody gets fired at some point in their career but if you don't take a big artistic leap yeah. Like you take a chance on something you feel really strongly about. You'll never do something interesting. You'll never fly. You might fall on your face, but you'll never fly if you don't take that big leap of courage. Sure. And that was like the best advice ever. And like just to have the courage of your convictions and really go for it. Yeah. And what's the worst that could happen? So, and I didn't get fired and, and it all worked out fine. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, he did tell me that I had to stop like using my hand so much because she was Jewish, not Italian. And, and you know, so, so he said, try and catch your hand because I, I would be talking like this. And he said, catch your fingers, catch them, catch it. Well, when you were talked, Turturro's wife? Yes. And he's oh. like, catch your fingers. Yeah. So I did. Like, you'll see. I'm going like You're that. catching your fingers. Instead of like. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, All right. So then Woody casts you. He Did he, Did you have to audition for that? Mm-hmm. You yeah. did. I, and the first audition, I was told that I was, it was good, but I was too far away from the character. Uh-huh. And my agents were like, well, wait, you know, because like they only handed us the sides like two minutes before the audition we knew nothing about the character except that she was unfettered and had no idea i i had to ask in the room if she was like a call girl i did not even know yeah you know right so uh so i hadn't come in with that as the character you know i I played it 
for real, but right. it, what, and then then my agents were like, "Wait, no, you don't understand. She's a real chameleon. You got to see her as this Catalan girl in the Wood Stillman movie." And then I guess Woody requested to screen a print of Barcelona. Oh, really? And then he said, "Wait a second, this girl." has nothing to do with the girl I met last year for Don't Drink the Water. This is like not the same person. Don't Have Drink the Water? Yeah. I, you auditioned for, for Don't... Yeah. They did a revival of Don't Drink the Water? Uh-huh. I did that in college. <laughs> I played the old man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so he's like, have her come in again. So I went in yeah. in England yeah. while I was working on The Buccaneers, which was an Edith Wharton miniseries for the BBC, where I was playing another uh, like half Brazilian heiress. Um, you know, I only used to get characters with like vowels at the end of their name at the beginning of my career. I could only play ethnic people. I could never play, really? never play just nondescript, non-specifically ethnic people. Why is that? You don't look particularly. Because it's because I dyed my hair blonde that I don't look it. Like, oh, really? It's one of the reasons okay. I stay blonde. It's weird. But like I, I was not castable. Like people people would say weird things like she's too urban uh-huh. and I was like urban I grew up in like suburban New Jersey I went to, to Harvard <laughs> yeah. like what I'm not urban I'm just Italian yeah. half Italian my mother's English Scottish yeah. Welsh yeah. you know German right. like I'm yeah, not yeah. but because of my exotic name Mira Sorvino okay because I didn't change it I and almost they, always looking to mind. box people in too yeah at that point especially yeah. now right. now I yeah. can't play half the roles that I played then because they would be seen as taking them away from somebody who was right. Latina mm-hmm. um, so Interesting. I yeah. wouldn't have been able to play at least three or four of the roles that right. I played early on because I was you know ethnically not Authentic. Although yeah, yeah. Maybe I still could have played Catalan because she's European, you know, Spanish and Italian. I mean, yeah. you saw the big deal about Javier Bardem even. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little tricky and know, specific with, now. There was a whole controversy that he's Spanish-Spanish and is playing Cuban. Yeah. Like, but, I mean, I don't oh, know Oh, that's where right, for the Ricardos. You know, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, but but th- that was the kind of thing that early in my career, I couldn't play a girl who wasn't either Italian Spanish, Portuguese, Puerto Rican, like I couldn't play Joe Schmo girl from middle of America. Right. All that changed when I colored my hair blonde and then I could play anything. And that was that was I well I I did it for Mighty Aphrodite because the character should should be blonde because yeah. she was this sort of, you know, ditzy character, but like a bad blonde, like yeah. not even a well done dye job. You it was know, a good, that orange. was a great performance. Did you feel Thank good you. about the performance? I did. I did. I was very nervous about it the whole time because that was one of those ones where I made that huge leap of faith in terms of a big, weird artistic choice with that voice. Like it was yeah. a very strange choice. You yeah. know? And, and I was even questioned on it like several weeks in. Like five weeks in, I think. By who? Woody? Woody. He was like, did you ever think about doing a different voice? And I said, what? And he said, well, you know, like Diane Weist, she changed, she played around with a few different voices on Bullets. And, you know, after doing one for a while, we switched to another one. That was the one we ended up doing. And then we, you know, we we shot everything. And I was like, but we've already shot for like five weeks. And he said, oh, I've got it built into my budget that I can do the entire movie over. I can reshoot the entire movie. I have that in my budget. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then, and, and, or, and people had been and it's fired. On you, the non People had been fired already several from that times. Movie? Yes. The, mm. the one character had been recast like three times, and wow. one of them was played by somebody I really respected, and she got fired. But then, like, so I said, so do you want me to change it? Because I will. I just want you to know that if I change the voice, she'll be a different character, but I can do that, whatever you want me to do. And he was like, 
huh, I thought it was more like a put on thing, like rich little like, you know, impressions. And I was like, oh, no, I'll stand by that this person talks this way. If I do a different voice, she'll be a different person. But I'm happy to do that. Do you want me to do it? And he said, no, I was just thinking out loud. And I was like, okay, wow. maybe don't tell me next time because you just put the fear of God into me. Um, Keep it in your head next time. Yeah. You know, and it's so hard to talk about it now because, like, I now have a very different opinion of Woody than I did then. And I blame myself for not investigating further into what happened yeah. with Dylan. Um, sure. And was that was that information out there then? I well, there remember. was the whole custody battle, and there it was in the press. Mm. It was pre Mighty Aphrodite, but everyone, you know, the way that the press had kind of skewed it was that this was vindictive, possibly drummed up as a reason right. to punish him for right. leaving her for Sunyi. Right. And I mean, look, just the fact that he was with Sunyi should have been enough. Yeah, it should have been enough for everybody to be like, hmm, daughter, hmm. what? You know? Yeah. Um, but. I have become since friends with Dylan and she's an amazing person and I have no doubt in my mind that she's telling the truth. So so it, it really kind of in a certain way ruins ruins sure. Mighty Aphrodite for me, ruins my Oscar performance, ruins that like start of my career because I, I treasured it for years and then it's like I should have denounced him and I should have known it then. I didn't know it then, but I didn't look deep enough to actually educate myself to really make a real educated opinion at the time. It's not an excuse. I should have. Yeah. And so I wrote a public apology letter to Dylan Farrow denouncing Woody and saying, you know, if we have to kill all the old gods, so be it. You know, mm -hmm. like just because he was as brilliant as he was just because I grew up reading his books and performing his plays in my high school mm -hmm. and just idolizing him doesn't mean he's not a terrible person who hurt his daughter who hurt a child and there is no forgiveness for that right so but it, it really taints it sure of course. It, it, and it, it's so crazy that so much of my early career is tainted by that man and by Harvey Weinstein like just yeah just really it's sort of breathtaking. Those two, it's the same movie, right? Well, he, he, but I did four movies with Harvey. But mm -hmm. yes, but that was that was the movie on which Harvey started paying attention to me and making uh, predatory moves on me. Yeah. It was during the press for Mighty Aphrodite. I'd already made two other movies with him. Made um, nothing. Nothing, no. But hmm. he didn't really take notice of me on the others. Which movies? Uh, Beautiful Girls and... Oh, yeah. um, it's a big uh, cast. Smoke. You probably had other focuses. Or Blue in the Face. Blue yeah, in the yeah. Face, yeah. And then later I did Mimic with his brother, um, which is a whole other story. Um, but, really? Uh, but you worked with Del Toro. Right. That must that have was, been good. Yeah, that was amazing. But they fired Guillermo in the middle of it, and I got him rehired. Like, really? Yes, because they uh, they hadn't consulted with me and my agents and my lawyers. And Who the hell else was going to direct that movie? <laughs> um, Ole Bornadal from Within, mm -hmm. like a, a Swedish producer who was on it, was going to take over, which is actually against the Director's Guild rules. Okay. So... Like, I asked Guillermo, do you want to keep doing this? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, well, then I, we're going to fight it. So my lawyers and my agents came in, and they were like, look, you didn't follow the contract. You were supposed to give Mira a list of 12 other directors, give her 24 hours to, like, go over the list if you were going to agree, you know, do it. And, and then Harvey said to Guillermo, come down and recut the, the assembled cut. Yeah. We'll give you 11 hours. So he came and, you know, because an editor had been putting it together and they weren't happy with what they were getting. Uh -huh. And he was over, over budget or over time right. or whatever. He went, flew to New York, recut it. And Harvey said to Bob, Bob, this is fantastic. I don't know what your, what your problem is. He's back on. 
so Guillermo has told me that if I had not done that, he would not have a career. Oh, wow. Like, because being fired from your first big movie is is a huge thing. That was his first big movie, so. Oh, that's good. Um, but. <laughs> but then you got your career screwed up. <laughs> yes, but my career was screwed up because Harvey wanted to sleep with me and I wouldn't. Um, and so, you know, that's. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, it's so <laughs> terrible because, you, you know, you can see where. You know, after the Oscar, you did, uh, you know, a few big movies and they were good and, you know, you didn't lose any money or anything and everyone, you were doing your job and it was great. And then all of a sudden just boom. Just dropped off the face Exile. of the earth. Exile. Dropped off the face of the earth. Yes. Couldn't, did not work in a studio movie for 20 years, 20 years from 30 to 50. And that's really, or 32 to 52, I don't know. But initially you didn't know you were being yeah. exiled or blackballed. Mm-hmm. No, it just was bad luck or just not going my way. Just each time, oh, I came down to the last few, but no, no, they want they want to go a different way, or they don't. think That's you're what right. they told you. Sure, yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I would go up for a bunch of things. I'd audition for a bunch of things all the time. And it's also weird, you know, not weird, but terrible. But like outside of you know finding out, which you eventually did. Yes. Way, but, way, way later. But even like the even if like let's say that that you, you know the the excuse was she's difficult. That was the code, right? Mm-hmm. For that don't was you. the code, yeah. But he, of, but that of, doesn't. Of course, though, I had made three movies with him and was never difficult. You see, yeah. And then as soon as I rejected him sexually, all of a sudden I was difficult. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> right? No one said I was difficult. Woody didn't say I was difficult. Spike Lee didn't say I was difficult. But all of a sudden, he told the Lord of the Rings people that I was difficult. They were going to cast me. And was and he producing that? He was initially, and then he. They moved on to to New Line, but the well had already been poisoned, and Peter Jackson was like, oh, Harvey said she's difficult, so I'm not going to cast her, even though he had moved over to a different... And he wrote me a huge apology letter after it came out, the whole Me Too stuff. Peter Jackson and his wife wrote me this gigantic, beautiful apology letter about how they had been all set to cast me, and they did not do their due diligence, and they realized that the only source they had this information from was Harvey. And they are profoundly sorry and that they should have cast me and that they would do whatever they could to help me if I needed it. It's so fucking sad. It was, and then the next day, um, Terry Zweigoff called me and made the same call about Bad Santa. Said that like he was considering casting me and then they would hang up on him when he brought up my name. Um, And like those are just two that have admitted it. But that bad reputation thing, like it's so pervasive, you know, like, yeah, because it's a relatively small business. Right. And if, you know, if Harvey's out there telling everybody, don't work with Mira Servino, she's really difficult. I, I went on to a blacklist. There was a blacklist that I was on for years and years and years and years in the studio system. And you All were just... I could do was indies. I did indies and I did television. And I wasn't willing, you know, and that could be seen as my fault, but I wasn't willing to leave my children for like a full-time network, you know, procedural yeah. that would make me away from them all the time when they were really little. Yeah. So I could have had more success on TV than I did had I been willing to take those jobs that would have meant me completely Ugh. sacrificing my motherhood, but I would have made a lot of money. Um, but you're, it's like a double whammy. You were getting you know slandered and maligned and, and put on a blacklist. And also, you know, even if you were difficult, that doesn't stop people from giving men parts. Right. But I wasn't difficult. No, I know. But 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 then on top of that, you had a family, which is another weird strike against women in this business. Right. Well, I also lost a, a several several parts over the years from being pregnant. As soon as they found out you were pregnant, they took the offer away. 
because they just, oh, well, it just doesn't work for us. You know, romantically, the characters have to be sexual and you'll be like eight months at that point and that's just not going to work. Or, or, you know, but like, it's a thing where you can't tell people that you're pregnant before you get the job. Yeah. Because they're not supposed to be able to fire you after the fact. But if they know beforehand, they just will find a reason not to hire you because insurance-wise, it's hard for them to. Um, right. But, you know, as actors, obviously, it's a visual medium. So if you, you, you know, get, it, right. get the second half of the pregnancy, you're, I mean, I've made yeah. several projects pregnant. It just, it was in the first trimester. Right. Um, it's fine. Look, I'm not here to complain. Like, no, I, I like I just, uh, you know, as we've said, life is hard. I just didn't, I just didn't know this in a certain way, not knowing it was happening is better. Like, I, I just ended up making peace with the fact I guess it just wasn't meant to be that I was going to continue at that high level career that I had in the beginning. It just wasn't meant to be. Not your night cake, but thing. that was the what what you said to yourself then. Yes, and and I was so happy with my family, and I yeah. have my activism that I do with the United Nations and yeah. for human trafficking, and so I, I cobbled together a really meaningful life for myself that I loved, and I still got to act. It just wasn't at that high visibility level. When I found out that. Harvey had done that, that put me into a tailspin because everything I had told myself for 17 years was, oh, wow, it wasn't just fate. It wasn't just, it wasn't my night kid. There was an active malevolent hand blocking my career completely, thwarting my ability to live out my dreams and to engage my talent because I do have my own unique talent. I'm I'm sort of a strange actor. I think like I... I, I have interesting characters that I come up with and, yeah. and I love doing it and yeah. I think I can be moving and I can can be funny and I have my own gifts to give the world and yeah. and he took that ability to give that away and that is so like when people think of sexual harassment as not being that big of a deal it is literally life shattering like to take 20 years of my life in my given career when I was an Oscar winner man I had a Golden Globe I had Emmy nominations I had other Golden Globe nominations all of a sudden, just gone off off the landscape of that because of a bad man that I would not sleep with, and he tried three different times, and the third time was right before the Lord of the Rings thing. So you know, I just, uh, I just, that's something that people really need to understand that harassment is not a small thing. It An abuse literally, of power. It took away. It took away my livelihood, my ability to feed my kids, and my ability to practice what I love to like fulfill my own personal destiny like I was meant to be an actress I'm good at it like it it was proven that I was good at it yeah and to be able to do that to me imagine someone with less power in a smaller industry where they don't have any notoriety they don't have any Oscar and just trying to get by and some man is like if you don't sleep with me I'm going to destroy you I'm going to get you so no other company will hire you I'm going to say that you did this I'm going to like it is so evil. It is one of the most evil abuses of power that's out there. And it's as old as time, you know. So, I mean, I am I am proud to have been part of this generation that, that stood up and, and, and started to raise our voices yeah. together and make some collective change, you know, change legislation, change public opinions. But it, it was very hard for the first, like, year and a half after learning that. Like, I was in a bit of a tailspin because I was like, oh, my God, my life wasn't just sort of happening. It had been driven into that. It had and, been and, forced into but that. But at that point, like, I, you know, I just watched that Bill Cosby doc, that uh, the documentary, you know, we need to talk about Cosby and, and talking about survivors, that 
it's it so it seems like when there's this many that everyone's isolated in their own experience until somebody you know says like that happened to you too right yeah now did that happen right when you found out how long did you have to sit alone with this I told everyone that I knew yeah. when he had first started making those advances okay. those, because yeah. they were physical. Yeah. It wasn't just it wasn't like with Ashley Judd where he just said, you know, yeah. you know, they they talked about the possibility of right. having an affair. Right. He did stuff to me. Yeah. And I, you know, so I told my agents, I told my best friends, I told my publicists, my managers. No one was like, oh, that's illegal. You should go to the police or you should have a lawsuit against him or you should go to HR. Like, no one was like, you have a case or that they were all sort of like, oh, you know, you know, just try and let it roll off your back. Kind of like it's systemic apologists. Yeah. Yeah. Just just basically everybody knew it about him already, but I didn't know how how extensive it was. I met one other person a year later when I was doing publicity for the Buccaneers who told me a similar story. That was it for many years. And then I started seeing in the late aughts there were articles supposedly brewing that they were going to expose him and then they got squashed. And I was like, oh, you know, people are starting to know. Yeah. Or like Fabrizio, his pimp in Italy, you know, was like, you know, there were rumors like stuff was starting to come up and he was so powerful he would squash it. Yeah. I had no idea that there were so many of us. I had no idea. That was, it was sort of stunning. Like, and, you know, (laughs) they always want blood. But like I went on some New York talk show um, around that time and they surprised me with a wall of images of like the 98 women that had come out so far and they didn't tell me they were going to do it and just seeing the preponderance of faces and I just started crying I was like oh my god like it, it was so overwhelming and I have to say some of the most lovely people I've ever met I've met through this experience and like gracious incredible women and most of them had their complete careers completely flattened like can't work in the industry anymore, don't work in the industry anymore, do something completely different. Mm -hmm. They were all actors and now they're not. You know, one of them was a screenwriter, but also not working in the industry anymore. Mm -hmm. Like everybody had to leave. So I am actually one of the very few lucky ones who did continue to work at a low level and now is finally being admitted back into those hallowed halls of good material, like, and with, with high level people. Like, I can't tell you how much it means to be to be on the set of Shining Veil vale or something like Hollywood or Impeachment with Ryan Murphy, like working with these brilliant people in every department, all the other actors, the directors. I feel like, oh, I'm so happy. Like I get to do my thing with people who are so terrific and the atmosphere is so positive and professional and it's not like making some tiny indie where... It's first time everybody and there's no commitment to quality. I mean, sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. Yeah. But like there's that just run and gun. Like we don't have the time. We don't have the money. We're not going to do it right. And here everything's about doing it beautiful and amazing and creative. And, and I'm like, I'm so happy. Like I'm literally like <laughs> like joyful. Yeah. And like working with people like Jeff Astroff is the best showrunner, the most loving person and so funny on Shining Veil. Vale. And the fact that he was like, oh, you sing, you dance. OK, I'm going to write that in for you. What? You know, like you're making my dreams come true, you know. But it's like yeah. I have to pinch myself because uh, I was locked out of this situation for many, many, many years. And like to see my name on a poster like Courtney Cox, Greg Kinnear, Mira Sorvino, like 
what? Like I'm <laughs> yeah. in I'm in that conversation again, like where I'm one of the leads that you think you can hang it on a, yeah. on my name. Yeah. Like it's so surprising to me, and and I think I'm I, I'm far more humble now. I think, I and mean, also like it, it, everything's on the table. Like you know, culture is shifting. Things have changed. The, you know, it, it's it's transparent now who you are and what you came from, and the stigma of either of of the stigma of, of having Harvey ruining your career or the stigma of having talked is now behind you. Yeah, and 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 because both of those seem to be sometimes problematic. Yeah, I, I mean, I was very, very, very fortunate that speaking out did not end up further worsening my career. It actually, strangely, I think. People gave me a fresh look because they're like, oh, what is the reason that we never consider her? Maybe we should consider her. Maybe it was all a pig spewing lies and destroying people's lives at will because that's what he did. Maybe there's nothing wrong with Mira. Let, let's let's give her an audition. Wow. You know? Yeah. And, and those people who took those chances on me, those first chances, like, I mean, Startup. I don't know if you've seen the show Startup. Yeah. Um, it was on Crackle. But it finally got discovered by the world when it went on to Netflix, and then it got to, like, number three in the whole world. Like, and, and I'm only in season three, but, like, those people taking a chance on me, they didn't need to do that. Yeah. And that was right in 2018, right after the Me Too stuff. Stuber, that was my first and only studio movie that I have done in 20 years. Okay? So that yeah. was right, right after that, you know? Yeah. And then Ryan Murphy casting me in Hollywood yeah. in, in a sort of life art imitating life part of an aging actress who has been sort of unfairly kept down by a relationship with the studio head, although hers is consensual, not, right. you know, but there's still this imbalance of power. But there's this scene, I don't know if you've seen Hollywood, but there's a scene where I'm with Holland Taylor and Patti LuPone in the commissary, and they're telling me that they're going to give me this, like, really meaty part, and my character's been, like, B-movies forever, and and she starts to cry with gratitude, like, that I'm so grateful that you see me and what yeah. I might be capable of doing and it, it was so meta you know it's so just like well this is me thanking Ryan Murphy for seeing me and knowing what I might be capable of doing you know and, and it was super moving for me but also very vulnerable because yeah. it was like well everybody watching this is going to think about how this relates to Mira it's Servino real. not yeah. just this character and wh- how were those tears were those um, like what, what I mean you were able to draw from your immediate situation well, yeah You're... no of course it was it was you know having to hold trying to keep them in check yeah. you know, rather than having to bring them up. There, there was no there was no intentionality of like, okay, right, now right. you've got to cry here. It was like, oh, <laughs> oh you know, God. just, yeah, but, yeah. you know, so I don't know. So I'm in this new phase where I'm really grateful. Yeah. I'm, I'm aware that it could go away at any time. Um, but you're getting to do it. I'm getting to do it. I'm yeah. getting to do what I love yeah. and what I think I was born for. Yeah. And so that's really special. Um, well, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, now I'm all like, I'm all emotional. I was, I'm happy for you. Thank you. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was great talking to you. And this show is very entertaining. And it seems like you have other things going on. You can make movies. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I have all these indies that I keep doing, and they keep turning out surprisingly well. Um, 
I did a movie called East of the Mountains, which is out right now, oh, um, okay. with Tom Skerritt in his first leading role in oh, his whole career. Oh, is that directed career. by, who directed that? Uh, S.J. Chiro. Yeah, name. I know her. She was, like, S.J. Chiro, I know her. She was friends with uh, with my girlfriend who passed away, with, with Lynn Shelton. How was that? It's it's terrific. And it, it, it's it's the only movie I've ever been in that has 100% on Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes. Like, it's it's certified fresh, 100%. Oh, my God. Like, not got, one I, single negative review. I and feel he, bad I haven't watched it yet. Well, it's okay. I yeah. mean, it's... It's like settle down, you know, on a, one of these cold nights and yeah. watch it. And he gives such a great performance. And, you know, I play his daughter and, you know, I don't have a very big part, but it's still emotionally important to the story. Uh-huh. And he's so wonderful. And to think that a man of his stature and his talent never was the linchpin of a movie before like himself. And he's, he's always around, though. He's, he's always, 88. Yeah, yeah. You know, so so he finally, you know, has his beautiful you know, day in the sun. He's really wonderful and had so many accolades. It was too small of a movie, I think, to really get into Academy consideration, even though we tried. Yeah. But he did get, you know, nominated and honored by other, you know, awards and festivals. Um, so that's still out right now. And yeah. then a movie today is opening up called Butter, which actually is also really terrific. It's directed by Paul Kaufman. And it's a very strange bird in that it's about a super serious topic and yet it's a comedy. So it's it's about... A boy, a teenage boy who is like morbidly obese, really, really, really heavy, like 400 pounds, who has this kind of Cyrano de Bergerac catfishing crush on this girl in his school, and he pretends to be somebody else online. Meanwhile, he's being bullied really, really heavily, and everybody calls him butter because they tried to force him to eat like a stick of butter. Um, And so he decides that he's going to commit suicide online on New Year's Eve by eating himself to death. It's called Butter's Final Meal. His, the, the, he has this online plan. And oddly, because of it, he becomes popular. Like all the cool kids, like they can't even believe that he's doing this. And they like, at first as a joke, start hanging out with him. And then they end up actually really liking him. And, and it's sort of about bullying and it's about body shaming and it's about suicide prevention. But it's a comedy. Yeah. And somehow it works. What do you play? I play his mom. Oh, wow. And his mom is very, like, she's very, (laughs) it's like she's stuck kind of in this antiquated version of what a mom and a wife should be and very feminine and always kind of babying him, kind of infantilizing him. And she makes him like smiley face pancakes. You know, she's always kind of forcing food on him like food is love, even Mm. though he's got such a a problem, a dangerous problem. Yeah. And as the story goes along, she really shifts and starts to understand how she can be there for him in a much healthier way. And it's very beautiful. It's it's really, I mean, it deftly weaves together like comedy and sort of teenage intrigue and then this real heartfelt growth. Um, and, and, you know, Paul Kaufman really wanted to do a movie that would kind of influence the national dialogue about suicide prevention in teens and oh, wow. body shaming and yeah. online bullying and and, and that just uh, opened today it, yeah today yeah so oh, and it's, it's gotten really wonderful reviews so that's another one of these small movies that you do because you love and then some of them turn out really great oh, like, that's and, great yeah you know, this is one of those ones yeah so you're busy and back <laughs> yes busy and back and I really love Rosemary, my character in Shining Vale, and, and you won't have seen that much of her yet if you've only seen the first few episodes, but as the season goes on, she becomes really crucial in it, and she's a very strange person because she's like, she is the dream of the former dead person. Like, Rosemary was a real person, yeah, 50s housewife, very repressed, kind of abused by her husband, just without hope, but she dreams of living like 
like a movie siren. Oh, so when okay. you meet the ghost of Rosemary, she's fabulous. And yeah, she just wants yeah. to hold parties and let's drink, let's dance, let's go to Paris. Yeah. But there's also an evil side to her because she's a ghost, you know, so. Uh, sure. But like, <laughs> was that your perception of the character or was that the backstory? Um, was the, 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 the device of uh, the dream of that person your idea? Well, I think it's sort of mine and sort of in the writing, but yeah. I definitely took her on this 50s silver screen, like, trajectory. Yeah. I mean, she's always in 50s clothes and she's from the 50s, sure. but like I don't have her talk like a modern person. She's like she's living her best life as she imagined life was supposed to be while she was alive and miserable. But she's kind of a combination. She's the real Rosemary's in yeah. there. The dead Rosemary's in there. Yeah. Then there's the spirit Rosemary, who is a much older entity but also has hopes and dreams. And then there's also some you know, like the scorpion, eventually she's going to sting you because she's, you know, yeah, a, a spirit in a house haunting. Angry ghost. Yeah, and there's things that happen. It's not so much that she's angry, she just it's just in her nature. She it's has a, to cause mayhem. She has to cause destruction. It's the ghost's responsibility. It is. And when they haunt a house. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 the, and, you know, the whole show is yeah. full of tips of the hat to other famous horror movies and, you know, like Rosemary's Baby, The Shining, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, Twin oh, Peaks. Well, now like, I'm going to well, watch the whole thing now. Oh, you'll love it. It's really fun. It's okay. really fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me. Sure. You feel good? I do. I do. Okay. Okay. Are you okay? I hope she's okay. The show's fun, and it was great to talk to her. But it was like it was... Whew, yeah. The show she's on is Shining Veil. Vale. It's on Stars. Premieres this Sunday, March 6th. And, you know, go enjoy her and all her work. Okay. Guitar time. Les Paul time. Les Paul custom time.
Boomer lives. Monkey. LaFonda. Cat angels everywhere.